Uh, Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1007. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 to 25 is going to be our focus, but I'm going to give us some context, so we're going to back up to verse 12, and I'll begin reading there, and then I'll pray. It says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds this. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, I thank You for Your Word. It is holy, pure, righteous. It is tested and true. And we pray that we would be moved to receive it this morning with thanksgiving and joyful hearts. That Your Holy Spirit would come and convict us where we are proud And humble us, that we may follow Jesus more closely and help each other to do the same. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So one of the most uh, influential Christian thinkers of the 20th century was a a man by the name of of Francis Schaeffer. And Schaeffer wrote a book called How Shall We Then Live?, And in its opening pages, he observed that there's a flow to history and culture. This flow is rooted and has its wellspring, he says, in the thoughts of people. People are unique in the inner life of the mind. What they are in their thought world determines how they act. This is true of their value systems and it's true of their creativity. It's true of their corporate actions, such as political decisions... And it's true of their personal lives. The results of their thought world flow through their fingers and from their tongues into the external world. I want to read that last sentence again. The results of their thought world flow through their fingers and from their tongues into the external world. 
We could say that the bulk of Hebrews uh, chapters 5 to 10 have been shaping our thought world. How should we think about the law? How should we think about the law pointing us to Jesus? How much greater Jesus' priesthood is uh, versus those in Aaron's line? How much Jesus' sacrifice dwarfs those previous sacrifices and fulfills them? How much greater the new covenant is when we compare it with the old? But God's word doesn't stop there with, with mere thoughts about Jesus. Those thoughts, especially since they're true and they're real and, and they are majestic, they, they, ought to, they, they, they should impact our will and move us to action. Our thoughts about Jesus' priesthood move through our fingers and from our tongues into the external world. At least they ought to. Verses 19 to 25 start answering Schaefer's question when these truths about Jesus get applied to the Christian life. How shall we then live if indeed these things about Jesus' priesthood hold true? With verse 19, Hebrews shifts from doctrine to practice, from gospel to results, from grace to good works. Verses 19 to 25 contain three exhortations, and and you can see them very very easily there. uh, Let us draw near, is the first, uh, verse 22. Let us hold fast, verse 23. And then let us consider, uh, verse 24. Those three words are going to outline where we're going. And they're so simple, I didn't create a a PowerPoint uh, for you today. They're just right there in the text, uh, easy to follow. Uh, Two of them we've seen before. Right In chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, you get the let us hold fast and the draw near uh, commands. And they, so these form a nice, nice bookends around the discussion about Jesus' priesthood. Um, but there is development. Whereas before he exhorted them to draw near with confidence, uh, now he assumes it, right? Since we have confidence. Meaning that, that as, you, as, you, as, as you continue reading Hebrews, your confidence ought to be increasing along the way. And I, and I pray that's been the case for you too as, as we've continued walking through this letter. That it has built up your confidence to approach the throne of God's grace. So let's take three, these three exhortations one at a time. The first one is, let us draw near. Let us draw near. The fruit of drawing near stems from a gospel root. Okay, notice the important word, therefore, in verse 19. It's pointing backwards. Uh, Chapters 5 to 10 uh, form one lengthy argument uh, about Jesus' priesthood and why it's so much greater than the shadows under the law. The law, or the old covenant, uh, it it could expose our problem that we're a bunch of sinners uh, separated from God, it could also point us forward to the solution. We need a great substitute uh, to enter God's presence, but the old covenant could never bring it. Right? The curtain in the tabernacle blocked the way into God's presence. The sacrifices had to be offered repeatedly because they never actually took away sins. Right? The, the priests needed a, a replacement every time they died. They weren't forever. They had to keep standing because their sacrifices never sufficed. All these old covenant shadows taught the people that the way into God's presence was not yet opened. 
But chapters 5 to 10 have, have told us better news, haven't they? Jesus' sacrifice opened the way for us into God's presence. And he kind of summarizes where he's been with, in, the, in the following ways. He says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So that's the basis for him telling us to draw near. That's chapters 5 to 10 in kind of a summary statement. By the blood of Jesus, meaning his sacrificial death, we can enter the holy places. Don't think earthly holy places, like you've got to go to a building somewhere. Think the very presence of God. Jesus opened a new and living way so that we have access to God even now while we're on earth. It's new in that it stands in contrast to the old covenant. It's living in that it's bound up with Jesus' resurrection life. So he keeps going. So also does this living way to enter God's presence through him is to find true life and eternal life. A curtain no longer remains in place that is telling us that we can't enter. Jesus, when Jesus yielded up his spirit, the Gospels tell us, right? The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. He opened the way through his death. But even more, we know that he also rose again. He sits at God's right hand over the house of God. When you hear house of God, think people, think church. We are God's house, chapter 3, verse 6 says. So Jesus presides over God's people. He actively intercedes for us. Revelation 2 talks about Jesus as a priest walking among the churches. He's intimately acquainted with us and our ways. Because of these things, because of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus, because uh, the, the way is now open, he says, draw near. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. A true heart is one that's genuine. It's not like the evil and the unbelieving heart that chapter 3 talked about. Uh, It's not the hardened heart that Psalm 95 taught us about. It's the heart that's now been made new by the Spirit. It's the heart onto which God writes His law. It's the heart that agrees with God and gladly wants to do His will. Draw near with that kind of heart in full assurance that grows out of our faith in Christ. Specifically, the next two clauses clarify what produces our assurance. We're talking about a holy God and we're sinners. How do we we enter His presence without dying? Well, it, it says that our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with with pure water. That's what we're trusting Jesus has done for us. And that's where our assurance comes from. Sprinkled has to do with the ritual purity of the people when they participated in the Old Covenant. We saw that in chapter 9. Bodies washed alludes to the purification rites under under the law. The the priests or the people would wash in water to signify their ritual purity uh, before God. But these ceremonies of the Old Covenant only cleanse the person outwardly. Jesus' work cleanses us inwardly, the heart, the conscience. These ideas represent the promise of the New Covenant in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, God says. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, 
And Jesus made that promise of Ezekiel 36 true for us. And so he says, draw near, beloved. Draw near. What what is holding you back? What what usually holds you back from drawing near? Is Is it a guilty conscience? Is it some great sin in your mind that looms in your thoughts? Is it the fear of of God rejecting you? You did this again. You can't believe it. I don't know if He's going to accept me now. Listen, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. That's the only kind of people He came to save. By His blood, you have a new and living way to approach God. People drew near under the Old Covenant too, but but we learned earlier in Hebrews that the sacrifices never made them perfect. Jesus' blood does. So don't hold back. Draw near with confidence, with boldness, knowing that you are accepted in union with Christ. Draw near when you are being tempted to sin. Draw near when you've already given in to sin. Draw near when you're afflicted with weakness fatigue and chronic health issues that leave you feeling useless. Draw near when you're persecuted by outsiders. I talked to, uh, with a missionary just this week and authorities are trying to bribe him, then threatening him if he doesn't cooperate. Jesus opened the way for him to draw near in these moments and receive help. Perhaps you've got a big task ahead. Draw near to the Lord. Maybe you received news that you didn't want... Uh, And it's causing all kinds of anxiety in your soul. Draw near to the Lord. If you're feeling lonely, which is common for a lot of people now in in this pandemic, draw near. All of us share different circumstances. We all face different needs and, and challenges. Yet all of us in Christ have this in common. We can draw near to God. Meaning we have open communion and fellowship with Him. We, we don't need to find some other priest or, or go to some building to experience His presence more. Wherever we find ourselves, we can draw near to, to His throne of grace. Now, if that's the case, what does your prayer life look like? Hebrews 4 sets drawing near within the context of prayer, asking God for help in time of need. I'm speaking of both formal, um, you know, scheduled times in prayer. And I'm speaking of the spontaneous communion you have with God throughout the day. What does your prayer life look like? And does it reflect this glorious reality that we have, the way has been opened? We can draw near to the Lord. What does your prayer life look like in this great day of distraction? John Piper once said, one of the, greatest use, one of the, one of the great uses of Twitter and, and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. We have more time than we think to draw near to God in prayer. We just tend to choose lesser and more immediate pleasures. Are you drawing near in prayer? The way to infinite joy and purity and holiness 
the way into rich pleasures and love and beauty, it's all opened to you through Christ. It's paid for by Jesus. We can come into these pleasures freely. This idea of drawing near also recalls how the priests drew near to worship and sacrifice in the Old Testament. Because of Jesus' work, we have become priesthood, a priesthood ourselves. We read about that earlier from 1 Peter 2. Although the sacrifices that we bring are not another goat and, and, and calves and, and stuff like that, Romans 12.1 speaks of presenting our bodies, these bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, we can draw near to the Lord and say, here I am. Use me. Take this body. Take this tongue. Take my mind and my creativity and my skills and my time and my resources. Take it all, Lord, and use, use them for your glory and use them for the good of others. In other words, drawing near is not only about meeting with God in prayer, though that's a big part of it. It's also about yielding our whole self to His purpose. You belong to His temple now. You serve in His presence now through Jesus. Drawing near is a glorious privilege for the Christian. At the same time, that doesn't mean things get easier, does it? God promises grace in our time of need, but the people in Scripture who drew near to God the most, their lives included great suffering in the path of obedience. The guys in our care group, uh, Cameron's been, been, been leading uh, through, through Daniel, and, and what we've, we, we've seen this play out in the book of Daniel. I mean, Daniel drew near to God so often, and the world hated him for it. So also with Jesus and his disciples. So there's also this call to hold fast. Hold fast. That's the second exhortation. Let us hold fast. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. What is our hope? It's not wishful thinking. Okay, hope here doesn't have this idea of kind of desiring a good thing to happen in the future, but you're kind of uncertain whether it's going to turn out for the, for the best. In Hebrews, hopes is this, is abs, it comes with, uh, comes with absolute certainty. The future good in view is so certain that it produces this rock-solid confidence in the present. The hope has to do with what Jesus secured for us. Uh, it's the ultimate fulfillment of the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Hebrews 4 talked about that hope uh, described in terms of our eternal rest, right? And we, we talked about that as having no enemies, creation bountiful, everything's rightly ordered, uh, everybody's made whole, all in the presence of God. Jesus secured that hope for us. And that's the hope that we confess and which, must, and which we must hold on to, it says, without wavering. Now, you might ask, like, how's that possible without wavering? Because the context for holding fast is mission in a world that is hostile to Jesus. So, how's that possible? 
From elsewhere in the letter, we know that false teaching threatens their confession. The fleeting pleasures of sin were alluring others. Weariness in the fight of faith was tempting some of them to give up. Persecution was a looming threat. And with that, it wasn't uncommon to lose material wealth. Enemies were plundering their property. We'll read more about that in, uh, in, a, in a few weeks. What would you do if authorities called you in and said, here's the deal. You stop telling people about the hope or we're coming after your wife and children next. Would you find yourself wavering? Would you maintain your confession? Or, or what, if the, 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 what if they threatened the very people you've led to Jesus? That, that, that's a real struggle I've, I've talked to missionaries about. They lead this lady to the Lord, and everybody's rejoicing. She's come to know Christ. She's been baptized. And then it dawns on them in, in some moment, if her husband sees her Bible and finds out she's been baptized, he will beat her. The family will disown her. How do you keep sharing? Various obstacles were testing this church, tempting them, putting pressure on them, just give up, throw in the towel. And various obstacles are tempting you as well. Pressures from a culture that is hostile to Jesus. Pressures from within to compromise. Sinful pleasures are luring us away. Weariness in long seasons of affliction. So how will we keep from wavering? And the answer is right here. He who promised is faithful. That's that's how. He who promised is faithful. What did He promise? According to chapter 7, He promised a forever priest after the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 8, He promised a new covenant with the forgiveness of our sins. In chapter 10, God promised a Savior who would fully obey God's will and give His body in our place. These were all promises that He made in the Scriptures and then He fulfilled them in the person of Jesus. In other words, Jesus, now risen from the dead, also who's seated at God's right hand, He is the proof that God is faithful to His promises. And that objective, proven faithfulness produces the inward confidence we need in all of these various moments we face to keep going. We're telling ourselves, we know God's going to come through. He's come through again and again and again. It's all over the pages of Scripture. It's all over the various events in my life. He's going to come through. This isn't sheer willpower. You don't have it in you. It's a faithful God making His promise come true for you again and again and again. That's how we're going to make it. Then we come to the last exhortation here. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Look at verse 24. 
And he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that day drawing near, that's Jesus' return. It's His second coming. The closer that day comes, the, 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 the harder the times will get. Jesus said that you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of birth pains. He goes on to say in Matthew 24 that lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. It doesn't take much reading up to see lawlessness on the rise. The question is, will your love grow cold? Or will you consider how to stir each other up to love? Consider doesn't mean, you know, we give it some occasional thought when we happen to run into each other. He means set your mind on it regularly. And also do it together. You can't stir up one another if you're isolated and by yourself. We do this by meeting together. Now, meeting together has its challenges right now. Navigating a pandemic. But there are ways to make togetherness happen. It's one thing to practice caution in a pandemic. But it's another to allow fear to so rule us that we neglect one another. Or maybe we just kind of get used to being separate. It just kind of becomes the new pattern. We've gone three or four months now just becomes kind of the new pattern of life. We don't want that to become our habit. We want to make efforts to be together, to be talking to one another regularly, seeing each other's faces, and the whole point being to stir one another up to love and good works. When you neglect meeting with your brothers and sisters, you cut yourself off from receiving encouragement. But here's something else that happens. You abandon your calling to encourage others. You abandon your calling, and that is not Christian. In Christ, you have a divine order to encourage, to provoke one another to love and good works. Our love for others should manifest itself in good works, and we need to provoke one another into those good works. Now, these good works stand in contrast to the dead works that he mentioned earlier in chapter 6. We also learned in chapter 9, verse 14, that the blood of Jesus purified our conscience from dead works to serve. We're not purified just to sit around and wait for glory. We're purified to serve the living God. And how do we serve the living God? With good works. 
And the rest of the letter doesn't leave us guessing what those are. So just go down a few more verses. Uh, and we get a clear example of the kinds of works he has in mind. In chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, we got the, some Christians that are being public, publicly exposed to, to uh, reproach and affliction. And notice how the church responds. It says that, some t- that, that sometimes beca- they, say they sometimes became partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now imagine, just imagine it with me. You got, we've got small groups here. And imagine the brother or sister is in prison, gets thrown in prison for the gospel, and they're hurting from the beatings, and they're hungry, and they're alone. And you all get together, and you say, let's prepare a meal for them. Let's go sit and sing some hymns together outside the the jail window. But here's the cost. By going, others are going to see you're associated with him. And now they're coming for you. They're going to come plunder your property, burn your house down. Steal all your belongings. Right? You're going to start wavering. Is it going to be safe? What about the kids? And then somebody says, we've got to go. He's family in Christ. She needs our support. Christ is all. The body they may kill. But God's truth abides forever. That would be an example of someone stirring you, the group up to love and good deeds. And the group says, let's go. Let's go. You choose to serve your brother or sister even when it hurts. That's a good work within the immediate context here. Other good works are going to come in, in later on in chapter 13, where just boom, 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 one after the other. You know, he's, he's saying things like, you need to be showing hospitality to strangers. You need to be holding your marriage bed in honor. You need to be imitating your leaders as they live the Christian life. You need to be doing good to others and sharing what you have. In other words, the good works in view are these praiseworthy deeds that intend to meet the needs of others and honor God. And you find similar examples in Paul's letters, right? For instance, in his instructions about which widows to put on the church roll, we find these good works that that should characterize godly women within the church. He says things like bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of saints, caring for the afflicted. Later, he speaks of servants doing their work honestly and with diligence. The rich people, he, he says, you, you, need to be, you need to do good and be generous, also ready to share with others in need. Tabitha, her, she, she was also, her name was also named uh, Dorcas in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 9, verse 36. It says she, she was a woman full of good works and acts of charity, and she would sew these tunics and other garments for, for people. 
In Titus 3.14, one of the most basic parts of discipleship is this. The church must learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. In other words, we're an unfruitful church if we choose not to do good works and devote ourselves to them. Now, I want to clarify one more thing here. The ESV has, consider how to stir up one another. It's not a bad translation. But I think the Christian standard version is closer to the mark. And I think it helps us understand an important point. I want you to listen to the way it reads. I'll read it twice. Let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Let us be concerned about one another. In order to promote love and good work. In other words, if we're going to do this rightly, we've got to start by considering one another. Before you can know how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, you must first consider each other. Not everybody shares the same needs at the same times. People's circumstances differ. Your physical abilities differ. Some able to do more and others less. Your available resources And access to wealth differ. Your spiritual gifts differ. Some being stronger in one area where another is weak. If we're going to get this right, it begins with considering each other. It begins with looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. When that is happening, we will know how and in what ways to provoke one another to good works. The way I provoke Destin to good works is going to look different from the way I provoke Stephanie to do good works. By considering them, my brother and my sister, first, know what's going on in their life, I will be more able to stir them into those things. Our meetings together, whether... Sunday gathered or care groups or one-on-one, part of their purpose is to cultivate love and good works. That's, that's supposed to be one of the main goals of our meetings together, love and good works. Christianity is not merely about avoiding badness. The terrible avoidance ethic in the broader evangelical church is to avoid sin. Stop doing that. Christianity is also about pouring yourself into all that is good and right and lovely. <laughs> there is something proactive about Christian, the Christian faith. How well do you think this is happening at Redeemer Church? How well do you think it's happening in your care group? How actively are you participating in that activity of stirring up your brothers and sisters to love and good works? Which question is most in your mind? Why am I not being cared for by the person next to me? Or, how am I caring for the person next to me? Which one is foremost in your mind? Why am I not being cared for by the person next to me? Or how am I caring for the person next to me? And the New Testament emphasis is on the latter. I love our commitment to sound teaching here. And I think the general devotion of this body to God's written word 
is such a gift. It's a joy to pastor people who, who love the truth of God's Word. But I do have a concern that our meetings sometimes turn into mere information transfer with little reflection on good works and what those good works should look like in our various places of influence. Doctrine is important, but it must come through our fingers and from our mouths into the external world. And if it doesn't, then we've got a serious heart problem. We need to evaluate why we're not treasuring these truths appropriately. As a pastor, I want to get better leading you there into these good works. I want to learn how to be more specific in provoking good works. If there was ever a season to be even more mindful of this, it's now. I mean, this, this pandemic has created all sorts of opportunities to meet the needs of others, to, to serve the more vulnerable in our communities, to, to mow, uh, mow their lawn, to, to bring some groceries, um, to pick up their prescriptions, to sew new masks, right? to help pay some medical bills, to help a family pay their, their uh, mortgage or, or living expenses from week to week because... The husband or wife is is out of work. Maybe ways to encourage nurses and other first responders with with a a gift basket at their doorstep. Another school year is coming up, and we'll see how that goes in in Texas, but but, uh, there may be some tangible ways for us to serve West Elementary again, which we've done in the past. Perhaps you know of a single parent in our congregation who could use some help, extra help tutoring their, their, uh, their, their children. Maybe you know of a single parent who you can watch the kids, help watch the kids, while, while they, they get some much-needed rest. The Pregnancy Help Center is still receiving women and, and helping them choose life. Even now as we speak, what a great sacrifice they're making, taking risks during a pandemic to spare the helpless and the most vulnerable. I just learned this, this week that, that a girl came in and after counseling her and, and helping her, um, they learned a couple days later that she had COVID. And so all the nurses and director were exposed uh, to that. But but they're making these efforts, they're, they're taking these risks in order to help the vulnerable. A few sisters in our church have chronic illnesses that are sometimes debilitating. And yet dad still has to go to work, leaving them alone with the kids on days when they're feeling very weak. I think we need to consider these sisters, be available and check on them and Stir up one another to serve them regularly. Some of you are already doing this, but I think you need some help. I think you need others of us to come alongside of you. We need to remember that in in many of these different kinds of investments I've mentioned, that they're not just one-time service opportunities. They may very well last for months and years. Give yourself to them and to the other people in scenarios like these. Don't assume that others are taking care of it already. 
or that they're going to ask for help when they need it. Don't assume that. Make, take initiative here. And be fruitful in doing good works. Draw near. Hold fast. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's the message from God's Word today. It's built on the rich gospel truths of chapters 5 to 10. If you are not zealous for doing good works, getting there will not come nor will it last by sheer willpower. By a kind of duty-driven ethic. Good works, if they're going to be truly good, will grow out of a heart that is enthralled by grace, captivated by Christ, and moved that at the cost of Jesus' life, Christ opened, He opened the way for us into God's presence. But something else to consider is what you are in a world that is filled with so many dead works. By giving yourself to good works, you will become a signpost of what the coming kingdom will be like. Heaven will be a place of pure love. Good works will abound forever, and it will be the only way that people relate to each other. Sin will no longer be present in hindering these good works, and all that we do and say will honor God and will serve our neighbor. The Christian life, though, isn't about sitting back and waiting for that day to come. It's about being the signpost of the final day in our interactions with others. And so in the words of Jesus, let your light so shine before others so that people see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The kingdom isn't here yet in full, but how glorious that others can get a taste for it by encountering Christ in you, both in word and in deed. May the results of our gospel thoughts flow through our fingers and from our mouths into the external world. And Gary is going to lead us into that song now in the, in the team, so you can go ahead and come up and... Uh, And then Trey will come pray. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.